MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. Hey everyone, so I had learned that Merriam-Webster made gaslighting the word of the year for 2022. And just so you know, in 2019, it was toxic. So there's something happening out there. I was both shocked, thrilled, and a little concerned, frankly, when I saw that was the word of the year. I was happy because finally what we're seeing is that people are starting to get educated about these patterns. And sometimes when you have a word for something and you realize that it's a thing, you're in a better position to cope with it and not think that you're the only one. So that part made me happy. The part that gave me concern is that not everybody understands it. Gaslighting isn't just somebody saying, that never happened. That's sort of like, it's taking a really subtle concept and making it simple. Gaslighting is a, is a much more complex process. It requires that you have trust in someone or you believe in their expertise. For example, it would have to be like a partner or a family member, or a close friend or someone you're turning to for their expertise. Yes, the first step is that they do deny your reality, perception or experience, deny that something happened or deny that you remembered something properly. But the next piece is essential and required for it to be gaslighting, which is then then the person goes to the next step and says, there's something wrong with you. What's wrong with your mind? You seem real paranoid. You're off. My gosh, you're so sensitive. So much drama with you. You're so emotional. You see that step? It goes just beyond saying that didn't happen. It's them saying that didn't happen and there's something wrong with you. Gaslighting's not a one-off. It happens over and over and over again in a relationship. And the challenge is if you keep hearing not only your reality is wrong or reality that you perceive is wrong or experience you had never happened, and then you keep being told there's something wrong with you, that accumulates over time, especially if you don't understand what it is, if it's happened in other areas of your life, it feels plausible. Most people then turn to self-blame. And if it happens long enough, at the end of this cycle, what we see is a person who is actually completely imprisoned 
by the gaslighter and just simply agrees with them on everything and to the world. What it looks like is that the person standing next to that gaslighter is in full agreement with them. That's where we see things develop like cult-like structures or even cult-like families where nobody's in disagreement. And it really does feel that there's no reality allowed except for the gaslighters. So I think it's amazing that it's there. I think it's important you understand it the way I said it. But my concern though too, is that as words become the word of the year, toxic or this year gaslight, is that we might sort of start losing the power of the word. Everybody out there is putting it up on their TikTok, on their Instagram, and many times they're not using it correctly. And what it means is that if we cheapen or weaken this word or don't use it correctly, the people who really are being gaslighted, and gaslighting is in fact emotional abuse that can do some real psychological harm to a person, that over time, what this can do to a person is really nefarious. So making it seem like it's just sort of like a a lie or a disagreement or a difference of opinion is where we miss something. However, when Merriam-Webster decided to make this their word of the year, it's not likely they were thinking about what was happening just in individual relationships, but what's happening in the world at large with the media, with honestly even governments at some level, political leaders often denying the reality of people on the basis of all kinds of things. People from any kind of group that doesn't have power in society, whether that's on the basis of ethnicity or gender identity or sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, pick something. And these groups who often don't have the same kind of societal power are the ones who are most likely to be gaslighted by the very institutions and platforms that are allegedly supposed to be telling them the truth. So all of that said, whether gaslighting is happening to you in an individual relationship with somebody you care about, or whether it's happening to you every time you look at your social media feed, or every time you look at the news, for this word to have been chosen means that it's taking a toll and finally getting the notice that I actually think this phenomenon needs, but make sure that you understand it correctly. And I really want to thank all of you for listening to Navigating Narcissism. And it's my pleasure for once to actually be answering everyone else's questions about this. And so now we're going to take on some of the questions that people have been sending to us all season, not just about gaslighting, but about anything else you can think about that relates to narcissism and narcissistic relationships. So in our first question, going to take on something that we actually haven't taken on in an episode of Navigating Narcissism. We're going to talk about narcissistic siblings. The person who's writing is writing about a narcissistic sister who has been taking advantage of aging parents and makes her family feel bad whenever she doesn't get her way, which is exactly what we would expect of a narcissistic person in a family system. The person who sent in this question only has this one sister, but her sister has always targeted her and turns her into a villain of every story. Her sister has a son, the only grandchild in their small family, and she uses that son as a tool and a weapon. The person asking this question wants advice on how to deal with narcissistic siblings. There are a lot of stories out there about narcissistic relationships, but not a lot on siblings, so any insight would be appreciated. I'm so glad this person sent in this question because the power of narcissistic siblings actually may represent one of the most powerful relationships or the most impactful relationships a person can have with a narcissistic person. There can be so much grief that's created by having a narcissistic sibling. There may very well have been a point in time, and you can look back at old family photographs, that this may very well have been someone you were sitting in the bath with or having a, you know, snuggling in bed with or at your birthday parties and holidays. They're a part of your history. And yet, it's quite often the case that people who have narcissistic siblings will say, even back then, there was trouble in paradise. Because so many people who come from family systems where they have a narcissistic sibling will have a recollection that, in some cases, their sibling was frankly bullying them, may have even been manipulative, or might even have those sorts of dichotomies where the narcissistic sibling might have been the favored child or the golden child or something like that. But whatever those early dynamics are, when they start creeping into adulthood, things get messy. 
If we really fast forward to later in life when parents are getting older, there might be issues around estates, wills, trusts, or even who's going to take care of those parents. I can tell you this, a narcissistic sibling or siblings will have no problem expecting that one sibling is going to step in and do all the heavy lifting and navigation of caring for elderly parents. But when it comes time to divide the pie of an estate, I can promise you those narcissistic siblings will be the first ones at the trough. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that the narcissistic siblings may only start rolling around when control over a parent's affairs really starts to matter. And this is no joke. I have seen people say that they had to spend years in courts trying to fight all kinds of things and powers of attorney and poor health care decision. This is a very, very real issue. And I think a lot of people soft-pedal it thinking, I'll deal with it when it comes. When it comes, it can actually be quite tragic. But before all of that happens, there are numerous other ways that a narcissistic sibling can show up and really be a problem for the other sibling or siblings in that system. Narcissistic siblings will continue to triangulate in the same way they did when you were little kids. They need to be the favorite child. They want to be the one who's viewed well, but that's not enough for them. They also need the other siblings to be viewed negatively. The person who wrote the question is always turned as the villain so that the narcissistic sibling can be the one who looks good. And then there's this additional wrinkle of things like grandchildren and nieces and nephews, which is not unusual for narcissistic people in a family system, whether the narcissistic siblings or even the narcissistic siblings-in-law may use children as a tool, as a weapon, not only to garner validation but also to punish people if you don't do exactly what it is they want. So the question is, how do you deal with narcissistic siblings? Hate to tell you folks, it's exactly the same way you deal with all narcissistic people. You start with basics, radical acceptance, realistic expectations. This person, this sibling who you've known since they were a small child is not going to change. You never want to call them out. You do not want to say, you're gaslighting me, I think you're narcissistic. That's not only not going to work, it's probably going to inflame the situation. So it is about having those realistic expectations. But this goes one step further. That radical acceptance and realistic expectations has to take in your parents as well. It's not clear from this person's question whether the parents or parents are narcissistic. doesn't seem so. They're not bringing that up. But they are getting older and the narcissistic sister is taking advantage of those parents. You are not going to likely be the one who converts the parents. I have worked with so many clients over the years who had a narcissistic sibling, and I'll tell you the impacts I saw were every bit as bad as I saw in people who had narcissistic partners. And the mistake many of them made was they went up to the parents. They didn't confront the sibling, but they went to the parents. And they say, hey, sister or brother is so toxic, is so this, is so that. And in nine times out of 10, those parents defended the toxic sibling and actually chastised the non-narcissistic sibling for saying such a thing. It's not a good play. It doesn't work. And it often creates more chaos in the family system. So number one, are those realistic expectations? It's not going to change. This person's not going to come around. And so the tool I give almost all survivors is that idea and that thing I've talked about over and over again, don't go deep. What do I mean by that? Deep stands for don't defend, don't engage, don't explain, and don't personalize. Basically, don't go deep is a fancy way of saying don't get in the mud with them. It's not going to work. So if you do engage or you do try to defend yourself in an argument, you certainly have every right to, but know where it's going to end up. It becomes about boundaries, but it also becomes about another concept I talk about, which is called true north. Seeing that grandchild or seeing that um, niece, nephew, how important is that? And how important is that to your parents? And how important is it to you to make that possible for your parents? I hate to say it, But it may very well be when sister rolls around with the kid and that's something your parents want and it matters to them, you don't have to be there. There may be grief around not seeing the niece or nephew or when they're there, you just sort of listen and you don't engage. 
None of these are optimal solutions, I agree. And some people may go the course of, sadly, I'm going to have to lose the niece, the nephew, whatever it is, and and the sister, which you might be okay with, or I'm going to grin and bear it so my parents can have the sort of illusion that they do have that family for a minute. But on a more serious note, where you really want to keep your eye on the ball is ongoing sort of planning around how your parents' finances will get managed as they get older. Because your sibling is so manipulative, there is a real risk that she may be financially advantaging the situation. It's not clear to me if that's what's happening. Once again, where it gets tricky, and I've seen this happen over and over in families where the non-narcissistic or healthier or more empathic sibling tries to weigh in, even tries to get the parents to speak with a trust attorney. They make sure that their resources will carry them through to the end of their lives. And the parents are often resistant to it, feeling like, oh, we don't need people mucking around in our finances. I trust you two as my daughters to do this. And that can be a huge mistake. But you do want to make a real concerted effort to do that because if you wait too long, and one or both parents become incapacitated, your hands will be tied. But in the interim, before it gets that dire, it is really about disengaging, practicing sometimes what we call low contact, or what Tina Swithin, who actually was a guest on Navigating Narcissism, calls yellow rocking, which is not just being sort of flat, but actually having a little warmth in your voice, gratitude, and all the good manners that we have but still not over-engaging. And a combination of all that, which is really a rule book for how to deal with any narcissist, may get you over the hump with a sibling, but also to the person who wrote this question. Be prepared if you really do start detaching from your sister. You will not only likely get pushback from your parents, but even the world at large, which still tends to view family estrangement as a fault of the person who is deciding to put boundaries up, rather than recognizing that this person was probably in a situation that was really bad for them and is making a decision to protect themselves and to have to deal with that negativity and pushback often means that tools like therapy and other supports become absolutely essential as you navigate this narcissistic situation. So thank you for sharing. None of this is easy but I hope that you're able to find a good place to land on that feels okay for your parents, protects them in the long term, but above all else, also helps you feel better in this situation. So with our next question, this person is opening up with, without a doubt, I've been married to a narcissist for 15 years. So you can substitute however many years that's been for you, 5, 10, 15, 50, 60, Put your number in there. So this person's questions are, is divorce the only option for someone in a relationship like this? So let's take that question on first. No, it's absolutely not. A hallmark of my work is to remind people that ending the relationship is just one of many options. I recognize that issues around children, finances, culture, religion, safety, all play a role in how people decide on whether or not to leave these relationships. But it isn't all just that. Let's face it. I mean, for some folks, they still love the person. They're like, the good days are really good. The sex is still really good. There's parts of this that I like, and there's parts of this that I hate. And it's so hard to reconcile. That's actually where a lot of folks in these relationships are. And yet they feel pressure to end it. Everyone says you're supposed to leave a narcissist. Not necessarily so. That's why the show's called Navigating Narcissism, not Dumping Narcissism, because it really is about figuring out what works in your life. There is no one-size-fits-all, so absolutely not. Divorce is not the only option. Please keep in mind that what I'm saying is taking into account that there is no danger, physical danger in this relationship, that no one is being physically harmed or things like that are happening. Obviously, in those situations, far more serious intervention needs to be happening. There's a whole slate of options. And you know what? Divorce may be an option down the road. I can't tell you how many folks I know who say family court is a mess. There's no way I'm doing joint custody. I need to be under the same roof as my kids. So they tough it out and their birthday present to themselves on the morning of their child's 18th birthday is to file for divorce because no more custody issues. So 
people all handle this differently. Next question this person's asking is, I've come to the conclusion that I cannot change him, but can I change the way I think and relate to him? Absolutely. But here's where I want to frame this. Don't make it about, I'm going to make all these changes in myself. I'm going to change how I relate to him because I don't want people to maintain those cycles of self-blame that are so classical in these relationships. The key is beginning from recognizing no one is going to change anyone else, but that doesn't mean you need to change who you are. If anything, what it means is start giving yourself permission to be yourself. Because to be in one of these relationships is basically like being hijacked. You have to give up on you to keep that relationship afloat. So let's not do that anymore. Now, you might think, well, they're not going to like it if I'm being my real me. They're not going to like it either way. So you might as well give voice to your authentic self. Start working on that. That's going to cause more arguments. No two ways about it. Don't go deep. Minimize your engagement. Don't get in the mud, don't defend, don't engage, don't explain, but also don't personalize. Their behavior isn't about you. Anyone in this marriage of this person would be enduring what you're enduring. It's not a you thing. It's a them thing. So you can, for example, recognize that you're not going to get any emotional needs met in this relationship. You can recognize that they are completely oblivious to your needs, don't care, and likely resent your needs. So you're not going to get any of that met here. That nothing you do will ever feel like enough because they need what they need when they need it. And short of you waking up tomorrow morning and being a mind reader, which I'm sure you already have been quite a bit in the last 15 years, the only way a narcissistic relationship could ever really work is if you could read their minds 24 7 anticipate their needs before they even had them, then they would think you're perfect. That is not possible, nor even if it was possible, a healthy way to go through life. Because basically, you're living in psychological servitude to them, and I cannot sign off on that. So it's really understanding the unchangeability not engaging with it, starting to cultivate your own supports, and slowly and quietly starting to give permission to the authentic parts of yourself so you're not always living in service to this person's needs because, frankly, they're not noticing yours and they don't care about yours. So it's no longer letting them annex your soul. So that's the change that would have to happen is no longer thinking that this can improve thinking that there is a someday better, don't future fake yourself. So the third question this person asks, building on that, is is it possible to stay with a narcissistic person and remain healthy? My answer to that is ish. Many people stay. If I were to estimate and spitball a number, I'd say that number is pretty close to about 50% of people stay for all the reasons I have listed. Can you remain healthy? And the reason I say ish is If you can really ratchet your expectations, have that deep acceptance, grieve the loss of what, you know, recognizing that you're not going to have a really connected, deep marriage and the loss of what that would be, thinking, oh, this life would have been different with a different kind of marriage, you just have to work that through. In the long term, living with someone who never sees you, who never notices you, who does not have empathy for you, you're on a roller coaster of good, bad, up, down, sad, mad, glad kind of stuff. That is not good for anyone in the long term. It's almost like living with a smoker. You're not going to die of lung cancer on day two, but the accumulation of that over time, that secondhand smoke is going to make you sick. And so I think that you can do things to up the probability that you remain healthy. Again, above all else, if you do Only one thing, that one thing is to cultivate social support. Have friends, be in therapy, be in a support group, be in a class, anything where you have voices in your life that are not gaslighting you, that do see you, that you have relationships that are reciprocal and compassionate and respectful. Those can be a hedge against what is happening in your marriage. And I have seen people who have actually really made a pretty healthy horse race of it, but it requires doing, and that's work. Once we get to a certain age, making friends gets harder, but it doesn't make it 
any less important. You need to do it. And then having routines, touchstones that you have, whether it's a walk you take each day or a meditation you do each day. And meditation and mindfulness work can also be quite useful as well as using your breath as a way to sort of self-soothe throughout the day. Practicing self-compassion is huge because we internalize their toxic voices and talk to ourselves in a very self-judgmental way. Finding ways to practice self-kindness and feel less isolated and not let the thoughts that, oh my God, this is my life, this is wretched, not let that overwhelm us. All of those things, practicing that sort of self-compassion in many different ways can also be a piece that allows you to be healthier. I can't sugarcoat it. Staying in a relationship like this will take a toll, but there are things you can do to really act as a hedge, and they'll go a long way to helping you feel quite a bit more sane in one of these relationships. And then the last question, and I think many people listening will resonate to this last question. Does it make me unhealthy to even consider staying with someone that I know is toxic? It really requires a careful analysis and a deep dive, ideally with a therapist, but you know, with even if it's on your own or with a really, really skilled listening friend, is what is your why? Why are you staying in this relationship? Is this about you believing you're going to be able to change this person? Is this about future faking? When they retire, when we move, when we have more money, when this, when that? Those are concerns. If it's a belief that you're going to go to therapy and that because of how you change, it's going to make the relationship better, mm -mm. any decision that's based on an idea that the relationship itself is going to improve is a risky way to make the decision to stay because it's, it's a bad bet. But if you really do do the critical analysis, and many people have, they have said things like, I have now looked at and I'm seeing how family court is running. A person might, for example, have a child with special needs and say, now this just child and their routines, I need to oversee this. Or someone else may be saying that I live in an expensive city. That's a big one. For most people of normal means, the idea of securing a second residence just doesn't work. So they say, okay, we're not going to be able to do that. So I'm going to have to figure out something here because it could have, again, ramifications for living, custody, commuting, all kinds of stuff like that. So there are practical things there. If it's coming down to practicalities and you're being very honest with yourself and it's not because you think some magical relationship fairy is going to come floating in and making it all better, then I don't think it's unhealthy to consider staying. And that kind of self-judgment can often lead survivors to shame themselves when they stay. It just requires you being honest and open and realistic with yourself as well. I know a lot of people grapple with this. Leaving and divorcing is not the only option. It is to some. And even then, folks, and even then to this person, post-separation abuse is real. Again, Tina Swithin, who was on this podcast, talked about post-separation abuse. What happens when the relationship ends? And that's its own form of problems. Over and over on Navigating Narcissism, I've talked about this idea that just because a relationship ends doesn't mean that the problems do. And so making choices for yourself without judging yourself and saying, what kind of fool stays married to a narcissistic person? So many millions of people that I would never call fools make that choice. The key is to make that choice with your eyes wide open. One other thing I do observe is that when people decide to stay in these marriages and they do it with radical acceptance and realistic expectations and disengage and low contact and build up their own supports, something happens organically where the person would have thought five years before divorce would have been impossible. By actually giving themselves permission to see the relationship clearly, no longer playing the gaslighted, future faked, maybe someday, maybe this will happen, if I try this, and on and on, and the self-blame, once that gets lifted and you see it for what it is, it's like in that harsh, glaring light, you can't unsee it. And some people will say, you know what, I spent three, four, five, ten years fortifying myself, seeing it clearly, and when I couldn't unsee it anymore, Divorce started feeling like a viable option, and they found themselves leaving, but not nearly as quickly as they thought. So keep in mind that this is an evolving process. You don't know how it's going to go. You may end up leaving. You may not. But any decision that is focused on your growth, on your authenticity, 
on your self-compassion and above all else, on your individuation, on your separating from this person, not getting your identity from their happiness, but from your own, that's a winner anytime. Thank you for your question. We will be right back with my answers to your questions. In this next question, this person asks a very brief question, but I think it's one that many people ask about. And it's something we haven't actually covered in Navigating Narcissism, which is, have you dealt with addicts that display traits of narcissism? And is this common in people living with addiction? And the answer to that is yes. Addiction and narcissism share a lot of commonalities. There is a lot of denial, rationalization, justification, blame shifting, distorted or minimal empathy, egocentricity, selfishness, as it were, entitlement. All of those things we see in addiction. We also see them in narcissism. Now, not every addict is narcissistic, and obviously not every narcissistic person is an addict. What I've witnessed is, and sometimes we won't even fully get it, until the person stops using. And where I've seen it is where a family will have a family member who is struggling with addiction, living with addiction, and then that family member goes to rehab. And they get treated, and some weeks later they come home sober. And they'll say, wait a minute. This person still does not have empathy and they're really entitled and they're still really mean. And the family will say, what? We thought that when they stopped using, they were going to become more self-aware and more capable of empathy. It's not even like they thought they'd come home and be a sweetheart. But in many ways, the very things, the very elements of that toxic personality, they remain toxic. But the family thought it was the addiction. And that's when we know we're dealing with that overlay. The people in the treatment facility would have noticed the same, that these are often clients that are really difficult to engage in treatment, who are often quite dismissive, quite contemptuous, and all of that. So that's actually a really painful wake-up call for these families, and who may also see it, because as we know with addiction, it is a disease, and in, the, in there may be periods where there might be periods of less use. And in a person who is an addict but doesn't have the co-occurring narcissism, in those periods of clarity, you will actually see some who, like, they're there. They're still in there. It's the damn drugs and alcohol. But for people who are narcissistic and have co-occurring addiction, what you might see is you might see some shifts in behavior, but the things that remain constant, the entitlement, the lack of empathy, the lack of self-reflective capacity, the diminished self-awareness, the control, all of that, the need for dominance, that's never going to go away. From my chair, from a treatment perspective, and when I've worked with addiction medicine physicians and et cetera on this issue, it makes treatment trickier. And what we see is that there may be a greater likelihood of relapse. And we see this in particular when a person's a vulnerable narcissist, so the more of the resentful, sullen, grievance-filled, angry-at-the-world narcissism, those folks are more likely to relapse. And because you got to remember, narcissism is at its core. There's a challenge with regulation. They cannot manage emotion. The upwelling of negative emotions for lots of narcissistic people brings up a lot of shame. Well, you want to know one way to get rid of a feeling of shame? Numb it. And there ain't no faster way to numb an emotion than drugs and alcohol. So the drugs either act to numb it, soothe it, push it down like a, a substance that's more of a depressant like alcohol, or become a way to pump up that grandiosity like you'd see with a stimulant like cocaine when a person's even more jazzed up and really feel like they're the king of the world. So drugs and alcohol will interact with narcissism in a way to sort of enhance regulation, and then that use can spiral out of control. In my work with clients who have co-occurring narcissism and addiction. I mean, let me tell you, it was a wild ride. It was like, it was like, it was like riding a bull on cocaine, quite frankly, because it was just, it was a ride that would never end. We were either managing the crises around the narcissism and the relational disruptions and all of that, or we were managing the crises of a relapse, or we were managing the crises of addiction. And I was just a shrink. You can imagine what this must be like for family members, and it can make relationships really difficult. It can even make, it can make recovery a complicated space. We talked with somebody who had a, a spouse with a lot of narcissistic characteristics 
who was living with an addiction. And what she had observed was that he even turned his recovery as a way to get validation. And that's also not unusual, that we would see somebody who uses 12-step more as a place to get validation rather than what it's meant to be, which is really a place of humility and a place to really commit to who a person needs to be to recover, to make this a daily practice, a commitment, and recognize that there's something much bigger running the show. That's really hard for a narcissistic person, but we do sometimes see the risk of performative recovery, where a narcissistic person will sort of seemingly be committed to recovery more to get validation than really in the hard work of recovery. But for me as as a therapist, it's like whatever I can harness to keep this person from using, I'll often use. So when I've been working with narcissistic clients who also are living with addiction, I'm like, okay, if the validation seeking is what's keeping them sober for now, I'm going to work with that. We'll deal with the narcissism in a minute, but the narcissism never goes away. So I thank you for that question because it is a really important overlap in one that we still don't fully understand well. So in our next question, we'll be talking about religious trauma. This person is working to untangle religious trauma that they've endured from the church. They realize that the church, this organized system of the church, they feel it functions in a narcissistic way. They then liken this religious system to a cult. They say, I can't explain it, but it feels like I was raised in a cult. The gaslighting, invalidation, control, isolation, shame, and the rage and threat of being discarded when you were out of line. Even though my church wasn't headed by a single charismatic leader, the movement and the denomination is charismatic and grandiose. They taught us that we were the only ones that were right and going to heaven because of our specific brand of faith. And they were not pleased about this. This person says, it's all BS. I no longer believe that God will judge you based on how little you sinned, but rather how you treated those you gained power over. I don't believe in eternal condemnation either anymore. As far as I care, it's a fear tactic to keep people in line. So this person's question really is, well, they have two questions. One is, how did the church sort of prime us to become narcissistic supply? Churches have an advantage, not just churches, all religious communities have an advantage, right? People who walk into religious communities are making the assumption that these are communities that are organized around good, that are organized around God. And we make assumptions that God is beneficent and God is good. I would have to believe that a God, any God, would be not anti-narcissistic, because I do believe a God would love everyone, but wouldn't judge people on their sins and rather on their goodness. A church, though, is a human-engineered organization. And as a result, it's going to be vulnerable to all the problems an organization has. triangulation chaos, power struggles, domination, all the things. And and yet the problem is people go in in many ways without their suspicion meters on because this is a house of God. You know, the problem is, is that God isn't always present at the meetings to call out the toxic BS. And so those people who anoint themselves as the carriers, as the vessels of God, there's something a little grandiose about that from the jump, right? One would actually argue that God probably resides in the most ordinary amongst us and not the person who's wearing a shiny suit and driving a fancy car. So churches are very much, and again, all religious communities, not just churches, pick a religion, pick a denomination. People are at their most vulnerable going in because They're not only vulnerable, but their trust is almost absolute. So once toxic systems are in play, the challenge then becomes is you may have narcissistic players, but then you'll have tons and tons of enablers who effectively become the flock. So anybody who wants to individuate and be their own person within such a system is going to be pathologized. And any church that doesn't hold space for individuation, for people being their true selves, that's already an unhealthy organization psychologically. Psychological growth comes for holding space for people where they are at, not where we want them to be. And so 
that unwillingness to let people be themselves, which many religious communities are, are guilty of, is something that is almost a setup for many religious communities to start becoming quite toxic. So in that way, a church primes people to become narcissistic supply because churches are often places of obedience, duty, and obligation. And so it's, it's in essence, it becomes a form of social control. And people who have their own independent relationships with God, with religion, with whatever higher power and spiritual force out there that they interact with, that private relationship is often their most intimate relationship, and that what happens in the church is something that's much more organized and curated. It's not going to be as honest, and yet those organizations often don't necessarily enhance that personal relationship a person has with their God or with their higher spiritual power, but rather they want it all run through that religious community. Not all religious communities are like this, by the way. Some are quite collaborative and cooperative and actually join together in that way. But unfortunately, it happens all too often because some people have too much power and the trust is too absolute, which can all you need is one toxic player in that system and the entire system could actually easily be contaminated. The other question, though, this person asks is, how does a narcissistic person maintain a relationship with God or with any deity? And I found this to be a fascinating question. I had to sit with this one for a minute. And I have to tell you, I actually think it would be a very grandiose relationship. And what happens is narcissistic people tend to seek out other people that they perceive to be high status, and they get narcissistic supply from hanging out with people they perceive to be high status. So that's why they'll often dump friends if they start hanging with somebody who's more connected or has more money or something like that. But what gets really interesting is that when you think about God, like, I mean, that's the hottest ticket in the room, right? So if God's your best friend, you know, that's so in a way, I think that many narcissistic folks are going to believe that the relationship that they have with a deity, that they have with a higher power, that they have with God is better than everybody else's relationship. Well, you know, by the way, I know God more. God returns my texts kind of thing. And so you really can get into this perverse place where they think they've like God's their homie kind of thing. Like they've they've got it all worked out and you're not you of course are not as close to God or higher power as them. And that's where we start getting into the really dangerous spaces of spiritual narcissism where narcissistic people will claim to be more spiritually evolved, more holy, more connected to the voice of God, more connected to the spirit than everyone else because they've been chosen. I think it's really grandiose to think that one person is chosen. I think the whole idea of a healthy God is that God's egalitarian and chooses everyone. So I think that that's what a, a narcissistic person's relationship often is with a spiritual force, is that their relationship is better than anyone else's. So it's got all the narcissistic flair, the entitlement, the arrogance, and basically God likes me better. So it's not going to be a healthy relationship, and they're often going to weaponize that spiritual relationship and hold it over others and make the argument that I have a closer relationship with whatever the spiritual force is than you, ergo, I'm better. So even in spaces that should be clean, spiritual, and holy, somehow toxic relationships manage to mess them up. So thanks for that question. My session will continue with my answers to your questions after this break. I'm a PhD candidate with an emotionally abusive supervisor. Chronic gaslighting, blame shifting, lies, threats, discrimination, future faking, all of it. This person wanted to reach out and ask me, Dr. Romani, would you be willing to speak about narcissism in academia? Oh, yes, I would. I have seen several high-caliber students being victimized by my supervisor, and it's heartbreaking to see the toll it takes on their self-worth and career aspirations, as well as their physical and mental health. I've known the abusive supervisor for nine years, worked directly with her for seven years. The patterns are consistent. Students before me were abused. I've experienced similar forms of abuse, and students younger than me continue to be abused. But there appears to be no help available. 
She is known in the department as controlling and shady, but that's about it. Nobody seems to care that her actions have very real and lasting consequences for her victims. Do you have any recommendations or advice for graduate students in my position? So let me begin with, I'm so sorry for you, and I know this better than you would think. When I read this question, this is one of the ones I actually kind of felt in my chest because I know what this can do to a career for anyone and so early in the game. So I'm going to be a downer for a minute, and I'm going to be a downer for a specific reason. So I'm going to really be a therapist for a minute. I'm going to sit here and tell you there's a lot less to do about this than you think, which isn't good to hear. But there's a reason I'm saying that. Because if I sat here and played Little Miss, let's try this and let's try that, I'd be taking you down a treacherous garden path, which could actually hurt your career before it even begins. And the reason I say that is more than anything else to be validating, because it can be really frustrating to believe that there is something to be done. You try to do those things. Not only does nothing happen, but you end up finding out that you might have put yourself in harm's way. So let's break it down a little bit. What you describe is a real example of sort of intergenerational institutional abuse. And academia is unique for this. For those of you listening who don't work in university settings, university settings are incredibly unique in how difficult it is to remove somebody who holds something called tenure from their positions. Once a person gets tenure, they get a very unique form of job security. Now, there's a wonderful thing about that because back in the day, tenure was designed so people could openly speak their minds and not fear that they were going to lose their job through some form of retribution, though I have to say even that's starting to change in academia. But secondarily, it just sort of protected people in those roles. But the problem is that kind of you-can't-touch-me-ness when it is held by a person who has a narcissistic or antagonistic style is a disaster. Because what it means is that students in these models, students, fellows, residents, whomever is training like this, are viewed as disposable because you're going to come and go. But that person who they know damn well they cannot get rid of without a huge legal battle would rather hope and hold their breath that the student's just going to move on than take on the task of removing that person. And if that professor is a hotshot, bringing in grant money, publishing science, forget it. The probability of seeing any movement in this is really, really low. In the interim, I'm here to validate you and say, I have no doubt the harm this is causing you, how difficult it is, the eggshells you walk on just to be able, it's already hard enough to be a graduate student. It's 10 times harder when you're having to do this with so much anxiety. I would say glean support without it being gossipy, It doesn't have to be, let's all go talk badly about this supervisor. But one place that can be useful is being there for each other. There was actually some really interesting research that was written about, I believe, in the Harvard Business Review. And what they were talking about is that when people have to work under conditions of working with someone really awful, like your supervisor, that you can see that these really tight and healthy alliances can form between the people who are stuck working there. And through all that support, they may actually generate some really interesting ideas, be much um, stronger supports for each other, and create a really special place. As someone firsthand who's had this happen, being in really toxic academic settings, but ended up making some incredibly important alliances that decades later remain important to me, I know how that works. I see it happen, and it can really result in some amazing things. That's number one. Number two, as soon as you can get a position away from this person, do it. It's not going to change, so it often means you need to leave, and that sometimes means taking a position in a less prestigious institution. It may mean changing some of your research focus or your teaching focus or whatever it is, but because that's not likely to change, hanging around longer, no different than in any kind of narcissistic relationship, not only are things not going to get better, It means that 10 years down the road, you're going to look backwards and say, I should have gotten out 10 years ago because I could see how this was never going to change. The next thing you want to keep in mind is document everything. And I mean everything. It almost becomes its own part-time job. 
Because if you ever do decide to pursue something, human resource departments anywhere, and particularly in university settings, are notorious for moving glacially, again, knowing the restrictions tenure puts on them to do anything. By documentation, I also mean emails, any other form of inappropriate communication that's come your way, much more detailed minutes of meetings, whatever you can bring, if you decide to pursue it, you will need that documentation. That documentation also serves a secondary function because it can serve to validate you to say, okay, my journal five years ago is saying the same thing now. This is not going to change. Because to the last part of your question that nobody seems to care, that her actions have very real and lasting consequences, you're absolutely right. Most people in the system don't care. Sadly, many people in these kinds of employment settings almost view this as a bit of a hazing ritual. We are seeing some bits of change here and there. I do think that the Me Too movement may have put a little bit more attention on workplace abuses, but since so much of Me Too was really focused almost solely on sexual harassment, it actually didn't necessarily extend to the other kinds of abuses you talk about, which are psychological abuses that really harm people at developmental stages in their career. But I know how real this is, and I have to say, having lived through some things like this that were similar, I remember when I got to that juncture in my career, and I was in a very traditional academic career, I remember looking down that pathway and saying, you're either going to stick this out and maybe find out that this isn't going to work out, or you're just going to make the leap. And I made the leap, and it was a very interesting leap because it it harmed and even distorted my career in some ways, but it got me away from the problematic person. But what was fascinating is that many years later, I talked to people who stayed in the position and things were exactly the same. So my, my prediction was actually spot on. And I can almost promise you the same in your situation. So get that support from others, be a mentor for those who might be more junior, and consider figuring out what your escape looks like as soon as you can, because then you can be the next generation of academic that's not doing this to others. But in the interim, this one is not going to be easy. And I really do wish you luck because we need your scholarship. We need the scholarship of sane people because the problem is in academia, almost more than many other spaces, it's the toxic narcissistic people who too often kind of over-occupy the airwaves because I think in some ways they just act like bullies with PhDs and that often gives them a legitimized voice and that a lot of people don't pay attention to the students because like I said, they think you're coming and going and that damn tenure, while it's so important, it can really, really keep some really antagonistic people having too much power for too long. So thanks again and good luck and I hope your degree and your training goes really smoothly. So in this next question, this is actually something really important because I don't believe we really tackled this in navigating narcissism. So it's a great one for us to unpack here. This person is asking, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on selective narcissism. I have heard this used to describe people who seem to be generally empathic, but then don't show any empathy for LGBTQ plus people or BIPOC people or people of, of color. For example, I've wondered about this because I'm queer myself, and I don't understand the lack of empathy that my parents have shown. I try very hard to be understanding about the fact that they grew up in a different time with different expectations, and that they never expected to have a queer child. But no matter how gently I try to talk to them about it, nothing seems to help. I try to tell them that the way that they have spoken about queer people my whole life has had a really painful impact on me. And they either yell at me saying, how dare you say that to me? We've done nothing but love you. Or they laugh and scoff saying, please stop exaggerating. That's ridiculous. So on this question, I'm going to start first of all to say, you know, thank you for sending in such a vulnerable question because what's being voiced here is something that generations of people have experienced and still continue to experience. And it is, it's devastating because we still very much live in a world of bias. So let's start with the selective narcissism because I actually don't know if I agree with this term. I believe that somebody who's generally empathetic and then carries an unempathetic stance about an entire group of people is not empathic. They're not. 
Because the ability to dismiss an entire group of people merely based on a singular characteristic, you're queer, you're black, whatever it may be, that's not empathy. So that to me is showing a failure in empathy. And then it shows me that there may be, they may have good manners. And I think we make a real mistake of confusing manners and empathy that they may be able to keep it together with certain groups because they feel validated because they're amongst people like them. But I've got to tell you, to me, racism and narcissism and genderism and heterosexism and narcissism are highly, highly associated. So I don't think it's selective narcissism. I think it's a very narcissistic approach, again, when you're able to eliminate an entire group of people on the basis of a bias. That's just me. I am sure there are people out there who would take me to task on that, but that's what I believe. Now you're bringing this, though, to the level of your family. That becomes an entirely different kind of an experience because while I'm not saying that any of us could fully understand why there's discrimination and bias in the world, we can sometimes feel a slight step removed from it. We're hurt by it, we're harmed by it, but it's not the same as the people who care about us or supposed to care about us. The things that this person says in their question, that when a person is showing up and in a very vulnerable way saying, the things you're saying are hurting me, so are sharing a feeling, the pushback is, how dare you share your emotion, then gaslighting them. We've always loved you. Clearly, this person doesn't feel loved because they have been basically invalidated on the basis of being queer. And they laugh and scoff and say, stop exaggerating, that's ridiculous, more gaslighting. I think this has happened for many people as part of their process of coming out. They had one belief about their family. They suspected that coming out would be difficult. That process of coming out is difficult and that fear is confirmed. I think that when a person is queer and grows up in a family where they know it'll be difficult. They've already had to do so much justifying and shape-shifting because of that fear, because of knowing that they would be rejected if they came out. And then after coming out, the family then continues to reject, but then doubles down even more and continues to gaslight. Gaslighters don't just start gaslighting one day. That's what gaslighters gaslight. They're like scorpions. Scorpions sting, gaslighters gaslight. It's just how it goes. And so they were likely gaslighting you all along. So here, to be rejected on the basis of simply who we are, okay, whether it's queer, whether it's being a person of color, whether it's race, what it's just a rejection of who we are. These are not choices we make. They are who we are. To me is the ultimate invalidation. To have it happen with a family member is absolutely devastating. The uphill climb that this kind of question reveals is the not only having to deal with a toxic family, but a recognition that many times these beliefs, especially when they're being presented in this cruel, gaslighted way, are like concrete and almost impossible to move. In all of the questions we've been taking on, therapy is often an essential ingredient towards healing. In a situation like this one, it's absolutely essential. Not only therapy, but therapy with a therapist who is really aware of the dynamics and issues around coming out, especially when there is toxic pushback in the face of it. We live in a world characterized by discrimination and bias and gaslighting on the daily. And that is why all of us unwittingly are in a relationship with a narcissist and we didn't even know it. It's just basically the world at large. When this trickles into your family system, it's all the usual rules of managing narcissistic relationships. What this person did, they did something I called going into the tiger's cage. This person expressed a very real need, a very real emotion to someone close to them, in this case, their family, and said, the way you've spoken about queer people has hurt me. It's been painful. I always say, it's, I call it the tiger's cages. You can go into the tiger's cage. Odds are what's going to happen is the tiger's going to tear your throat out, right? Every so often, you might be wrong. You go in the tiger's cage, you're like, oh, that's actually just a cat. But if it's a tiger, you're going to get hurt. And maybe you sometimes go into that cage to find out if it really is a tiger. And then word of advice, don't go back into the damn cage again. This person went into the cage and what they saw was something painful. That is not likely to change. It is not your job 
to educate your parents on this issue. You've done your best, and to keep doing that may very well come at harm to you, to your own mental health, to keep doing that. It's very personal to you on how you would choose to integrate your family into your life going forward. Some people would say, I'm done, and really put their focus on chosen family, recognizing what the journey was and grieving the loss of family, which for any of us to know that was not an unconditionally loving space is utterly devastating. If you choose to maintain contact with your family, then it's done with, in a way, that is informed by the fact that they are invalidating you, that it's not going to change, to keep realistic expectations, to really think about whether you'd want to bring a partner into that circumstance where they're going to hear that critique. Some people say, my partner and I are on the same page. They're willing to come in. I was actually just with a gay couple uh, recently, two men, and they were sharing stories about family of origin. And they knew exactly what they're dealing with. The partner's like, I love him. We know what we're dealing with. They go in together. And so that's, that's a very personal choice and that one that you need to work through. But the key work for you it's, again, not going deep, not defending, not engaging, not explaining, and not personalizing. This is their bias. Don't let it at all diminish your brightness, your journey, and who you really are. Because that's what they're doing. Is they're negating who you really are. But this becomes the work of therapy to recognize how often you were overtly shamed your entire life for who you are. That is a very, very heavy wound to carry. Unpacking that in therapy becomes essential as part of your journey of individuation and then deciding how it works for you to fit your family into your life, but recognizing that likely going forward, it will at best be a very superficial relationship that has always got that sort of cloud of judgment and shame hanging over it. And as I've said to others, self-compassion becomes a huge part of this work. And having support from other individuals who may have gone through very similar processes as you, so you don't feel alone in this and feel supported, it is devastating. It is devastating to be invalidated by our parents for whom we simply are, but it's not insurmountable. And I really thank you for bringing up this question because it's, it, it envelops two issues, not just what happens in individual families, but what happens in the world at large. And again, a pushback, I don't believe in selective narcissism. If people may have nice manners, say their pleases and thank yous and remember the right gift and even help a person out, but if they weren't willing to extend that help to another human being on this arbitrary basis, that does not count as empathy in my book. Maybe that's just me, but I'm sticking, I'm sticking to my point of view. So thank you again for your incredibly vulnerable question. I have no doubt that many other people will benefit from this. I'd like to conclude by saying thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your questions. Something that I hope to keep getting to on a regular basis, especially when it rounds out what we're already talking about on navigating narcissism. One thing that these questions teach us is how devastating these relationships can be, no matter what the nature of the relationship is. And I also do want to reiterate, yes, getting your questions answered can be helpful, but in most cases, talking to a licensed mental health practitioner about these issues to unpack not only issues related to narcissistic abuse, but the many other sorts of psychological and psychosocial challenges that come from these relationships is often necessitated. So thank you. Thank you for your vulnerable questions. Thank you for allowing me for a moment to attempt to shed a light on these issues. And please keep those questions coming in. It's a real privilege to read them. And many of them have forced me to really do a research deep dive to ensure that I keep this knowledge base moving forward in the hopes of validating each of your experiences in these very difficult situations. Thank you again for listening. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakuten, and Dr. Romani Devasala. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara Della Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donahue and Calvin Bailiff. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts 